Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Joining us today is Dr. Richard Dutton, Clinical Associate of Anesthesiology at the University of Chicago and Executive Director of the Anesthesia Quality Institute, also in Chicago. Dr. Dutton spent 17 years at the R. Adams Cowley Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore, where he was a professor of anesthesiology and director of clinical operations until his move to Chicago. During that time, he became a recognized international expert on coagulopathy of trauma and resuscitation of massive exsanguination. He is one of the lead authors of the recently published Control Trial, which was a phase three trial to assess the utility of recombinant factor 7A in preventing death from hemorrhage following severe trauma. Secondary endpoints in this study included transfusion need at 24 and 48 hours, the incidence of multi-system organ failure, ICU and hospital length of stay, and thromboembolic events. The article appeared in the September 2010 issue of the Journal of Trauma. The complete reference for this article is Hauser, Boffer, Dutton, et al., Results of the Control Trial, Efficacy and Safety of Recombinant Activated Factor 7 in the Management of Refractory Traumatic Hemorrhage, Journal of Trauma, Volume 69, Issue 3, page 489, September 2010. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Dutton. I'd like to start by asking you to give us an overview of how the concept of coagulopathy and trauma has changed in the last 10 years. I was initially taught that coagulopathy was due to dilution resulting from resuscitation, but this concept seemingly has changed significantly. Can you please talk about that? Uh, certainly, I'd be happy to. Thank you for inviting me to speak about this. As you say, in the 1990s, we thought that coagulopathy and trauma was mostly a late effect of dilution with a contribution from hypothermia and shock. What we learn, have learned in the most recent decade is that coagulopathy is actually the leading uh, factor, it, that patient, trauma patients become coagulopathic very early after injury, that it's caused by endothelial disruption and chemical changes, uh, immune changes, if you will, in the blood uh, in response to both injury and ischemia, tissue ischemia. This work uh, observationally arises out of a couple of studies, one done at the Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore. We looked at initial labs of trauma patients as they came in the door, found that a significant number of them were already coagulopathic prior to receiving any fluids at all, and that those patients did much worse. Uh, coagulopathy was associated with higher degrees of injury, greater states of shock, and very much with worse outcomes. Similar study done at San Francisco General in the same period, published by Karim Brohi, found exactly the same thing. And this began a look for what the mechanisms were there. Uh, we now know that coagulopathy arises uh, from a number of factors. It is related to both the degree of tissue in injury, which we think is endothelial disruption, and from the state of shock or tissue ischemia. Uh, one of the factors that Dr. Brohe's lab has now identified is early activation of protein C and uh, fibrinolysis, early activated fibrinolysis. This kind of makes sense from the cell's point of view. If it's ischemic, it is normally because it has decreased blood flow, 
and releasing fibrinolytic compounds makes sense. Far more patients still clot to death than bleed to death. Uh, in trauma, of course, this response is maladaptive. And recognizing that, uh, addressing it, uh, treating it early has been the major focus in trauma resuscitation over the past decade and has led to a lot of changes in how we practice. And before we get too much into the uh, control trial in Factor Seven, let me just ask you a follow-up question to that. The studies you alluded to all documented that a rise in the coagulation parameter, be it INR or PTT itself, uh, it portends worse outcomes, specifically mortality. Correct. Are there studies showing that correction of that abnormality decreases mortality? No. Uh, there have been no prospective randomized studies of this, but the observation is incredibly strong. You're talking about, I mean, in our 30,000 patient sample at the trauma center, uh, the difference between a low normal INR and a high normal INR was a doubling in mortality. Uh, as the INR rose and as the degree of injury severity rose, the association was uh, very much a linear stair step up to the point that a patient with an ISS greater than 25 and an INR greater than 2 at the trauma center door had a 60 to 70 percent mortality. Exactly the same data in San Francisco. This is a universal observation. Not surprisingly, it's led us to thinking about, well, if we address that quicker, can we improve outcomes? Nobody has done a randomized prospective study of that, but this is what's informed one-to-one -one resuscitation uh, or hemostatic resuscitation, as it's sometimes called, early massive transfusion protocols, early use of plasma products, and uh, in the early 2000s, early and aggressive use of factor seven and hemorrhagic shock. And what was the thinking that factor seven would be efficacious uh, or as efficacious, if not more efficacious, than just massive amount of uh, FFP? Some of it was a salvage effort. In other words, we'd already given a massive amount of FFP and the patient was still coagulopathic, so we needed something else. Uh, as we've studied it more, the real rationale is that factor seven is a much more concentrated product. If you give plasma, you get physiologic amounts of factor seven in proportion to everything else. Plasma is inherently a very dilute product in terms of replacing clotting factor activity. Um, in trauma patients who are already coagulopathic when they arrive or who get that way very quickly uh, in treatment, the need is for something that can jumpstart or catch up with a deficit that already exists. Pharmacologic factor seven, uh, the product that we buy and give as a unique factor, even a small dose of that is in the pharmacologic range. It's, it's 10 to 100 times more than the normal circulating factor seven level. So this is a medication, not a product replacement at that level. And so with that then, let's go ahead and start talking about the control trial itself. Um, can you give an overview of the trials that led up to control itself, the control trial study, its findings, et cetera? Sure. So first case report of factor seven use in trauma, 1999 in the Lancet. First case report in America, 2001 uh, in the Journal of Trauma. Uh, case series. Our series in Baltimore published, I think, in 2004, 2005, several other case series in trauma patients. And those first two uh, were penetrating traumas? Correct. Correct. And both were in the rescue circumstance. Both the first Israeli use, the first one published internationally, and the first American use were patients who'd received more than 100 units of transfusion at the time they got the Factor Seven. And they reported, obviously, survival benefit case report fashion. 
Right. The typical publication bias and that kind of thing. We have no idea how many people got it and didn't get better. They didn't get written up. Yep. <laughs> uh, the, but these were the success stories. These were what published. These provoked interest. Every trauma center in the world started thinking about it, occasionally using it. Every trauma surgeon gave it a try. Um, and then the case series arose. I wrote one of them. Very difficult to show a benefit in a case series. It's impossible to go back and control. These are patients with very high ISS, very complicated injuries, and very unique presentations. You can't match control groups retrospectively and, and get anywhere, um, especially because our use at the time was mostly in a rescue scenario. A patient was already freely coagulopathic, was dying. We were willing to try anything to, to, to fix it. The first prospective randomized look at factor seven in trauma were parallel penetrating and blunt trauma trials done uh, in the mid-2000s and published. Dr. Bofford was the, the lead author of the publication, also in the Journal of Trauma, about five years ago. I don't know the specific citation, but it's easily found. They did 140 patients in each group, so 140 blunt, 140 penetrating, 280 altogether. International sites, not including the United States, with a waiver of consent, uh, use of factor seven after 10 units, I think, of uh, transfusion, found significant reduction in blood loss, significant reduction in further transfusion in those patients, no difference in mortality, no difference in durable outcomes of organ failure or that sort of thing. This uh, was published, and it provoked the need for the next trial uh, on a larger scale to do in a prospective randomized fashion a look at whether you could improve mortality with factor seven. And so let's talk about the control trial because that was the final prospective study. And will be for a good time to come, I suspect. Uh, so we set out, the steering committee, who are the authors of the paper, uh, set out to design the best possible trial to assess factor seven. These are all people who'd used it clinically, had some experience with it. Obviously, Dr. Bofford had led the pre previous study. Our goal was to look at it in a true clinical environment. So we wanted it in the setting of good, uh, good general trauma care, and that, that's an important theme I'll come back to in a minute. We all felt that giving it earlier would offer... Uh, enhance benefits, that rather than using it as a rescue, giving it earlier in resuscitation ought to improve outcomes. So we moved the threshold for giving it back to four units rather than eight. So the patient became eligible to receive it at four units. At the same time, we wanted to remove noise from the trial of patients who were going to get better no matter what we did. For instance, they'd already stopped bleeding. For that reason, enrollment in control, you had to have received four units of transfusion. You had to have a traumatic injury. Either blunt or penetrating was fine. You had to have evidence of active ongoing hemorrhage, uh, continuing fluid requirement, acidosis, evidence of shock. The clear uh, thought, the art of it, as it were, that the patient was still bleeding and was still being resuscitated when you gave the drug. Um, these were obviously difficult entry criteria to write. We uh, took our proposed inclusion criteria and ran them through a number of large trauma databases, the trauma registry in Baltimore, for example, the one in Memphis. We looked at the German National Trauma Data Bank. Whatever sources we could find, 
let's put those inclusion criteria in and see what kind of population that gives us. In all of those uh, sort of pre-studies, we found that the mortality in those groups was 25 to 30 percent. Control was therefore powered to show a benefit to a mortality of 25 percent, and actually we were hoping to reduce that by about 5 percent or down to 20 percent would have been fine. Powered analysis gave us about 1,500 patients, and that's how the study was launched. Consent. How on earth do I get consent before four units? I get four units of blood before I leave the trauma bay. Right, and that's exactly the kind of patient we were looking for. Uh, so it depended on what country you were. This is an international trial. We wanted to include the U.S., but we wanted to include the rest of the world as well. We wanted to get it done. So I think we ended up enrolling patients in 34 different countries. Um, 100 centers initially participating. Uh, that eventually reduced somewhat to the number that actually included patients. The, uh, in most of the rest of the world, we were able to get a waiver of consent or a consent through a designated third party. For instance, in Germany, consent for enrollment would be given by a lawyer, the hospital lawyer, who had been pre-briefed on the study. So we could acquaint him with all the ins and outs of the study and what kind of patients we were looking for and so on. So it was essentially all pre-approved and relatively easy to bring patients in. In other parts of the world, we could do it with a uninvolved third-party doctor, for example, as the consenter for the patient. In the United States, uh, none of that was viable. <laughs> and our mechanism uh, is this community consultation, waiver of informed consent. Um, obviously, this is tough sledding for the investigators. It's a lot of work that has to be done. Um, that's what the steering committee recommended to the study organizers, but that's not where we wound up. It was determined that would take too long to get the U.S. centers up and enrolling. So the actual consent mechanism in the United States was the same as in the rest of the world. Somebody had to give consent, either the patient or a family member. As you yourself know from your practice, this is going to affect who you can enroll and how you can enroll them. Just as a, as a digression, at some point during this discussion, we did a short study at the trauma center. We actually observed when a patient was consentable or when they had a family member who was consentable without having any study attached to it. We were just trying to collect the demographics. We observed 2,000 consecutive admissions, found that less than 20% of all patients were consentable within two hours. Uh, and this was obviously much worse if they were seriously injured. So bad brain injuries or bad bleeding, the two groups were most likely to want to study. Uh, we looked at when the, their LAR, or legal representative, was in and available, and it averaged about four hours after admission. So we knew this wasn't going to work well in the United States, um, and this was one of the difficult parts of control. And there's no question that in the U.S. enrollments in the control trial, we got a somewhat different patient population than we did in the rest of the world. These were patients who were bleeding more slowly because we had to have time to get them enrolled. Yeah, and this is a, certainly a recurring theme in emergency um, department-based research, which, which we can talk about, I hope, in a uh, future setting. Before we get into the results of the control trial, I think a point that you brought up we should probably talk about a bit, and that was the meticulous nature with which you guys went around ensuring that standards of care post-resuscitation were met. Yes. 
uh, obviously, if you're looking at mortality as a primary endpoint, which was the, the insisted on primary endpoint of the FDA and other regulators, you, there are lots of things that affect mortality, and you want to make sure that they are not contaminating your study in some way. There was criticism of the first trauma trials that it was done in a very um, heterogeneous group of ICUs and trauma centers, and this was perceived as an issue. So in control, we specified uh, very close adherence to good trauma care standards, as we interpreted it at the time. And we actually paid a significant amount of money to the Vanderbilt Consulting Group to be third-party observers of that care. So when a patient was enrolled, it was reported to VCC, they reviewed the chart, they reviewed the care, they reviewed the adherence to these standards, and they provided feedback to the investigators in real time about, you know, did you do a weaning trial today? Why did you give that unit of plasma? That kind of thing. The three key elements we leaned on in the, in the standards, damage control. So we insisted that the patient go directly to the operating room or as quickly as possible, that the initial operative procedure be limited to control of bleeding. They weren't doing femur fractures and other orthopedics. Uh, that would add to blood loss, but, you know, potentially change the initial resuscitation. Uh, that was one piece, so good surgical practice. The second piece was the transfusion guidelines, uh, which basically emphasized early aggressive use, one-to-one -one resuscitation for actively bleeding patients, the same as we practice now. Uh, and then later in the ICU, very limited resuscitation, so not gratuitous administration of plasma because the labs were off. We didn't give platelets just because the platelet count was low. To get transfused later in their course, the patients had to be actively bleeding. And this is good practice. I think we, most of us would agree, and you've probably done other podcasts that will talk about that. And then the third piece had to do with ventilator management because we had endpoints around uh, days on the ventilator, incidents of ARDS, uh, some of our secondary endpoints, we wanted a very uniform ventilator management picture, so low tidal volume, high PEEP, you know, management of mean airway pressure, daily weaning trials, minimal use of sedation, all of those kinds of guidelines as well. All the investigators were trained in these up front. It was part of the teaching to, you know, to sign up investigators for this. All of their centers signed on to doing this, and as I say, we closely audited it. And Unfortunately, this may explain in part some of your findings. I think it explains a lot of our findings because <laughs> what happened, and I'm sure most of the audience already knows, the trial was stopped at about 600 patients after about two years of enrollment. Uh, the reason it was stopped was scientific futility, which is a somewhat meaningless term. What it really meant was at that second we stopped it, the mortality in the Factor seven group was 11%. The mortality in the placebo group was 11%. Both of these were substantially lower than the 25 to 30% we were predicting. It became clear that even if there was a difference between the drug and placebo, we weren't going to be able to prove it in 1,500 patients. In fact, it would have taken 15,000. And that would have taken 35 years of enrollment. <laughs> and it's possible that something else would have changed in that time. So. Uh, the company pulled the plug on the trial at that point. I mean, we, it was a collective decision. It was clear it wasn't going to work. And we went ahead and published the results, as you know. But the story doesn't just simply end there. So although you guys were not able to demonstrate a mortality benefit, there was 
for lack of a better term, maybe morbidity benefit, morbidity in this case being defined as utilization of blood products, which of course are a limited resource. Sure. So the secondary endpoints, we had pre-specified, I don't know, 20 or 30 of them in, a, in sort of descending criteria. Uh, we did not find a difference in major organ failure by the various scores or criteria we used. We did incidentally find a difference in the incidence of ARDS, but you have to kind of read into the paper to see that. Uh, it was less in the factor seven group. Um, we did not find any uh, difference in safety, and I'm sure we'll come back to that in a second. In other words, the incidence of thromboembolic complications, all complications, was identical in the two groups. We did find a significant difference in the units of blood products transfused in the factor seven group. Reduced units of red cells by about two, plasma I think by about one unit overall, overall total blood products by two or three units in the patients who got the factor seven. Exactly. And so the, the trial ultimately concludes that factor seven may decrease blood utilization, cannot tell if it's affected mortality at all because of the problems we alluded to. And maybe the difference in mortality, I guess, as you already mentioned, was because of the best practices that surrounded the patient at all times from the moment of laparotomy on to the postoperative period. And the final paragraph of the paper says, then in this environment of best practices, quote, improved trauma survival due to the administration of any one single agent is unlikely, close quote. So where do we go from here in terms of future studies evaluating resuscitation paradigms? How do I measure if my intervention matters, if I'm just a good trauma center and a good doctor? Uh, that's a very challenging question. I'm actually going to a conference uh, sponsored by the NIH and the FDA next week to talk about this very issue, what should be endpoints in emergency research, and how do we work the consent issues around that. Uh, my take on this study was exactly what you said. I think the most dramatic finding was that by adherence to good practices of trauma, trauma care and paying attention to that, we reduced a predicted mortality from 25% to an actual mortality of 11%. I can't prove that. Uh, perhaps our doctors were just very good at selecting patients who were more likely to survive to be enrolled in the study, and that's the other possible explanation. The, so I can't prove that. I believe it probably had some impact. You know, this is interesting because the other persons with whom I've spoken thus far, uh, Mike Rhodes about clinical practice guidelines, Shahid Shafi about uh, measuring outcomes amongst trauma centers, the same theme comes back again and again, that if one simply puts away the bickering amongst people about whether you got to give six cc's per kg or eight cc's per kg, should we give five of FFP or eight of FFP, just adhere to the common clinical practice guidelines, outcomes seem to improve. Yes. And we took a good look at mortality in the trauma center from as I was leaving the trauma center for my new job. This was the last big project I worked on is we had carefully analyzed death and cause of death in all our patients for 15 years. We looked at that data very closely. We discovered that the total mortality at the trauma center was 4%. It was 4% in 1994. It was 4% in 2010. We hadn't changed it. That was somewhat discouraging since we thought we'd made some improvements. However, our risk-adjusted mortality had gotten substantially better. So when benchmarked, in this case, the TRIST methodology, benchmarked to the severity of injury in those patients and the, the uh, presentation physiologically, we were doing much better. So the real bottom line is we've been achieving the same outcomes in steadily sicker patients. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is a very hard area, having looked at this very closely, it is a very hard area to prove 
things in. I don't believe that any single therapy for trauma can show a benefit. Uh, At this point, of 100 patients admitted to the average trauma center, four of them, as I say, are going to die. And of those, three and a half of them are going to die no matter what you do. They have fatal injuries, transtentorial gunshot wound, broken every bone in their body, whatever it is. 90 or something percent of the patients are going to get better, again, no matter what you do. And routine good care will take care of them and they'll be fine. And it's only a couple of percent of everybody you see that is really influenceable with any new drug or product or technique. So it makes research very hard if mortality is going to be your endpoint. And so what do I do? Now, here we are. You're, a, you're a, obviously a very well-respected anesthesiologist with expertise in resuscitation, and I'm on the trauma surgery side, and we have an exsanguinating patient. What is, in fact, the role of factor seven? Uh, it's one more arrow in the quiver. We don't know everything about it. We know something about it. We've learned through this series of studies and a lot of clinical experience when it might be helpful, when it's not. I think it's like a lot of the other arrows in the quiver. There are certain patients it's going to be very good for, just the right thing for at the right time. And in a lot of patients, it won't make any difference. In a few, very few patients, I think it will be harmful. I mean, it is a very potent procoagulant agent. So the patient with the vertebral artery disruption, the unstable coronary arteries, the... Although, although the control trial, as you already mentioned, had no adverse events related to venous thromboembolic disease, or arterial for that matter. It, it wasn't quite what I said. It wasn't no adverse events. It was equal numbers of Correct. adverse events. In fact, as in any trauma trial looking at very sick patients, the incidence of thromboembolic events is pretty high. Sure. I mean, if you wait 30 days, a lot of these patients have something. And in fact, the, the overall rate of any occurrence, thromboembolic occurrence, was a 10-ish percent in both groups. And it was all the stuff you'd expect, late DVTs, uh, you know, that sort of thing. The, but, so some of, the, some of my opinion comes from my clinical experience with the drug. Uh, patients that you don't want to give factor 7 to are those with unstable endothelium. The specific groups I've identified that we've published case reports are about are, as I mentioned, if you do a CT angiogram when the patient arrives and discover that they have a grade 2 vertebral artery injury, you don't want to give factor 7 for their TBI because you run a serious risk of having a thromboembolic stroke. If the patient is 65 years old and has coronary stents, I think that's probably a really bad choice. For factor seven. And in fact, the average age in control was about uh, 29 to 39, depending on the cohort you looked at. Correct. So there's your answer. We're looking at a young population that has, by and large, healthy endothelium and I think is at much lower risk. The last published thing in intracranial hemorrhage with factor seven, again, two trials, one that was very positive and then one that was equivocal or negative. Uh, But in the second trial, they clearly saw an increased thromboembolic signal in a population that was averaging in their 70s. And those were aneurysmal patients. Those were not uh, trauma patients. Correct. So back to the trauma patient, and you and I have decided that we're going to maybe restrict our use of factor 7 a little bit, not necessarily get rid of the drug outright from the formulary. Penetrating versus blunt, does that matter? No. Uh, Especially in the era of automatic weapons, uh, where... A penetra- I mean, a penetrating trauma patient with a single stab wound to the ventricle has, honestly, very little tissue disruption 
and that probably is a different animal than a MVC patient with broken bones and, and a ruptured spleen. The patient who has seven bullet holes from their head to their toe probably is much more similar in terms of tissue injury and, and a degree of anatomic disruption to the, to the MVC patient. But honestly, I think it's more about the bleeding and the blood loss. And I actually didn't want to ever split up blunt and penetrating trauma because I think bleeding is bleeding. And, and to some degree, it's a simple approach, but we need to stop the bleeding. That's been the big emphasis the last 10 years. Very rapid control of hemorrhage, so quick to the OR, the damage control model, and then this early uh, addressing of coagulopathy, so early one-to-one-to-one, hemostatic resuscitation, trying to do things that will help the bleeding stop quickly. That's the real emphasis. And in regards to maybe the recommendation or suggestion that we should, in fact, use factor, continue to use Factor seven again, in a more restrictive fashion than we had in the past, are you suggesting we should continue doing this because of its blood sparing effect, the hemostasis effect, or do you think underlying all this there may actually remain a survival benefit that we just didn't detect? I think there is a survival benefit that we didn't detect. I've given the drug to enough patients to have a few that I'm pretty sure it made a big difference. That's the art of medicine as opposed to the science. I don't believe we'll be able to prove that, at least not for some time, but there are patients where I think it's the right thing to do, and these are the patients where you're already behind the curve, the patient's already coagulopathic, with a tissue injury that would suggest they're going to have ongoing bleeding. And I think that this is a very useful uh, weapon in catching up to that patient where you're already behind. Now, another thing about Factor Seven, it provoked a whole school of thinking. Prior to the year 2000, we didn't think we could control coagulation from outside. So the analogy I use for the anesthesiologists I talk to is for 40 years, if the surgeon says, could you make this person stop moving, we can pick up a syringe, give them a drug, they become paralyzed, we can reverse that effect very cleanly when we want it reversed, and you don't really regard this as a miracle, but in some way it is. I mean, it's a very unusual that we have that degree of control. The advent of Factor Seven put the thought in our heads that we could do the same thing for the coagulation system, that we could turn it on and off in a discrete fashion. That thought, more than anything else out of Factor Seven, is going to be its enduring legacy. My guess is that 10 years from now we don't use it because we have something better or different, but the reason we have the better or different thing is that we thought to look for it because we suddenly got the thought that we could. And uh, so continuing to pick your brain about things that control raised but really wasn't able to adequately address, uh, so far we talked about uh, who to give it to, uh, how to give it, I suppose. The question would now be how much to give. So what is the dosing? Control was a high-dose administration. Yes, and I'll be perfectly blunt for your audience. Uh, the steering committee fought hard with the company about that. There were two schools of thought. Um, the original dose, the dose used, which is 400 micrograms, so an initial blast of uh, 200 and then 100 and 100, uh, per kilo. So this is astronomically large doses of factor seven, a thousand times the pharmacologic uh, dose. This came from the hemophilia literature. It had to do with carefully drawn out curves of the quantity and the half-life of the drug in the circulation based on scientific evidence from the wrong population or a different population. 
trauma patients are very different. They have normal coagulation underlying their injury, and they need to stop bleeding once. Once they stop bleeding, they're generally good. And assuming you fix the anatomy at the same time you fix the physiology, you're done. So most trauma patients need a single dose. This is actually borne out by the U.S. statistics. Factor VII is a fascinating drug. 80% of the patients who get it in the United States are off-label. It's single use in obstetrics, cardiac, neuro, trauma patients that are bleeding. 80% of the quantity of drug given in the United States is on-label. It's repeated large doses to hemophiliacs, where it is an indicated product. So this is very odd, very different, and suggests the two models are different. Our own experience with Factor Seven in the trauma center has been that you don't need to give anywhere near that much. Uh, we actually evolved you know, just through art and, art and practice into using two doses. For patients with active ongoing hemorrhage, actively bleeding, getting transfused, so getting diluted at the same time, we would give a dose of 100 mics per kilo as our single dose. And very rarely would we ever give a second dose. If it didn't work, it meant the patient was futilely it was futile, and the patient was going to die and was already beyond salvage. And if it did work, you didn't need more. The other dose we used was about 10 micrograms per kilo, and we actually called it the administrative dose because it was the single small vial. And, you know, we don't throw any away. It's too expensive. But the one milligram vial of it, about 10 mics per kilo, uh, that we used for patients that were lethally coagulopathic but not losing bulk volumes of blood. So who do I mean? The TBI patient with the active expanding subdural on Coumadin, the perfect model. You can reverse the Coumadin effect in 10 seconds with the factor seven dose. You can get them to stop bleeding. Again, we've published a couple of small series about that that suggests that there's a benefit there. So this is important because of the cost ramifications. Because if you really believe control, and albeit it was stopped early and whatnot, there seemingly is not a thromboembolic adverse event related to these astronomically high doses that the study population received. But I suppose giving 400 mics versus 100, my hospital gives 90, some people give 40. These have dramatic cost ramifications. Yes. And I don't think they have any safety differences. I've looked at all the published data in all these trials very carefully, and there is no safety signal related to dose. Uh, and this is because I think all of the doses we're discussing, including the, the one milligram or 10 mics per kilo dose that we use, it's still 10 times the normal circulating mm -hmm. amount. It's still a drug. It's still pharmacology, not uh, replacement. Whether uh, the newer products emerging, PCCs, for example, prothrombin complex concentrates, which include factor seven, but in a balanced cocktail with a bunch of other stuff as well, whether they do better or not remains to be seen. It's clear you don't need huge doses to get the effect you want, uh, but I think any of these products have the same thromboembolic risks, and you have to assess the rest of the patient what's going on. Excellent. Well, this has been a, uh, a fascinating, I think, uh, review of the control trial, which uh, I certainly think is a, a very, very important study for all trauma providers uh, to be familiar with, uh, given the nature of the drug, its possible adverse events, and certainly its cost. We've been speaking today with Dr. Rick Dutton regarding the control trial and the role of recombinant factor seven in the exsanguinating trauma patient. I would like to thank you again for taking the time to share your views with us and compliment you on your ongoing work in this field. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. 
For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Babak Sarani.